Cats are just like living with other adults. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash JavaScript Jammer. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support and high performance all backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at JavaScriptJammer.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at javascriptjabber.com slash rackspace. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 142 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have Joe Eames. Hey everybody. Dave Smith. Hello, world. AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Still coming at you from Provo. Jameson Dance. Hi, friends. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick reminder, go check out JSRemoteConf, jsremoteconf.com. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Joseph Gentle. Hi, everybody. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? I'm sure. So I'm Joseph. Um, I worked on ShareJS, and I've spent the last two years working at Lever, although I quit a few months ago. Uh, I used to work on Google Wave uh, like years ago before it got cancelled, and I've sort of spent the majority of my time since then programming, trying to like rebuild a lot of the tech stack that we had since then, uh, that we had then, and put it in a Node.js world. Google Wave? That's awesome. Yeah, I know. It's totally my street cred now. Yeah, no, it was great. I find it really interesting now because I talk at conferences and things sometimes, and I always ask people like whether they heard of Google Wave, and there seems to be like fewer and fewer people who like who know it. But oh um, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. It was it was a great piece of tech. It was crazy. Like the team was crazy, and it it failed for all sorts of completely sensible reasons. But yeah, I'm really glad to have worked on it. It was fantastic watching like a big company implode in on itself and destroy one of its you know its <laughs> possessions. I kind of is it's like that obscure indie band that goes on to inspire lots no. of like a whole new genre of music or something. No, Google Wave is like web TV. It just came 15 years too early. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you saying that web TV? Oh, wait, that is kind of a thing now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Netflix, right? I mean, web know, TV, I mean, and well, and, and like Justin TV, aka um, Twitch, that's just been sold to Google for like some ridiculous. No, yeah, Wave was Wave was super too early. We had a team of like sixty engineers working on it, which was wow. way too many engineers. That's yeah, really um, it, it was one point one million lines of Java when all was said and done. Oh, um, what could possibly go wrong? 
Oh, exactly, right? <laughs> but then at the same time, like, all of the people who used to work on the Wave team, like, one or two people ended up, like, co-founding Firebase, Google Wave bought Etherpad, and then when the Etherpad guys left Google again, one of them went to, as one of the co-founders, so David Greenspan, as one of the co-founders for Media, like, I've gone and done ShareJS. Like, I, I think there's, like, Google Wave people everywhere now, and we're just quietly, like, you know, incepting the world on a whole bunch of the OT code and stuff. So what uh, year was it that Wave was finally cancelled? Can't even remember. It was several years ago. Was it before the iPhone came out? It was around... No, no. The iPhone had, had come out like a year or two before then. Okay. Like, it was sort of IE9 days. The The web browser was... T- like, browsers were terrible back then. Um, it got, <laughs> yeah. it got released in May of 2009. It got cancelled in August of the same year. So, okay. yeah, like... The browsers were terrible. We had a, a like internal. We use Wave for everything on the Wave team. Maybe unsurprisingly, but we had this giant Wave that like scrolled for more than a page, which was all of the open web browser bugs that we found through the process of making Wave. That we had open like tickets and stuff on on different browsers. Like we pushed the browser really hard, which was something that people didn't really do back then at all. You know, and like in all sorts of weird ways, including our own scroll bar, which was a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It was what it was. Yeah, like and, and the, the client took. Like it was, it was like several hours of CPU time to compile on Google's like internal data centers, so right. it only took about five minutes of clock time. But it compiled down to like 350k of JavaScript compiled through GWT, and you know because that's that was probably like that was seen as a good idea back then. It was launched in 2009, but I think it was started work started in about 2006, and like Node.js was not a thing then. Like, Node.js was barely a thing when I left Google and started ShareJS, um, which was right after, and I was working on ShareJS against Node.js 0.4. Like, it was a, you know, crazy weird little thing that I just did for fun, because, oh, hey, this Node.js thing looks cool. Like, this is before NPM was around. Like, the the list of packages was a page on a on a wiki somewhere. It was on a wiki, it was on, I, mean, I think it was a GitHub, like, markdown document that you could submit pull requests against so that you could have your package added to the the markdown file on Node.js itself. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like that's that's the state of Node.js back then. And yeah, like it, it's easy to forget how how much time's passed, how much better our browsers have gotten in the last few years. Like now sure. we can just you can take for granted the fact that we've got you know a modern version of Chrome, a modern version of Firefox. If it's IE, then at least it's going to be IE nine or ten. Hopefully, IE ten, eleven. Like it. Even IE is now, you know, semi-modern, and you can just assume that. But back when Wave was around, like, we got a huge amount of crap for dropping, like, old versions of IE support. And, like, that's probably reasonable. Like, we just straight out ran out of man hours. We had a, a version of Wave working on, I think, IE7 for most of the developments period. Oh. But it took about... Yeah, but, like, it's you loading... You <laughs> <laughs> But people were using IE7 back then. So, like... We wanted to be compatible. We needed to, um, except that it, like IE seven loading three hundred fifty kilobytes of JavaScript, it took like a long time. Like it looked like the browser had hung while it was loading all the JavaScript, and <laughs> it was a terrible experience. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can totally see that. Have you gotten on Wave yet? Well, I opened it. I'm gonna go get lunch. Just for the benefit of our listeners who may be wondering why we're talking about Wave with a shared JS. <laughs> topic today. Joseph, can you tell us how uh, ShareJS came to be and how it relates to Google Wave back in the day? So Google Wave, for all the people who haven't played around with it, and unfortunately this is not an experience you can have anymore, the original idea was that we should have this sort of like, these things that are kind of like emails, but also kind of like Google Docs, where you can invite more people to them and then have a conversation 
in the document and everyone can just see each other's changes live and everyone can make changes. Everyone can update each other's comments and then it just adds you as an author to that comment as well. And like, it's this sort of like weird technology that we didn't really know what people would use it for. And it took us a while to figure that out. But when Wave got cancelled, I mean, like, I, this, it's a great idea. Like, this is something that we need in the world. I want to have the, um, you know, someone called it the, the glorious messaging bus in the sky that like, <laughs> Part of the other idea with Wave was that it should be federated, so you should be able to run your own Wave server the same way you run your own email server. Um, and then if I like start a Wave with you, then my server and your server talk directly, and there's no like you know there's no Facebook reading all of my messages. It just goes between respective servers at our companies. Um, Mark Zuckerberg but- just rolled over in his grave. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's alive, uh, Joe. <laughs> yeah. I was trying yeah, to figure out how to break that to you. It was a preemptive I- roll. <laughs> 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 anyway, but when Wave got killed, I was like, oh, this code doesn't need 1.1 million lines of Java to work. So I rewrote it in about 2,000 lines of JavaScript, just on top of like modern web stuff. And it worked great. And that's what ShareJS originally was. It was just this like, you know, it didn't do federation, it, like it didn't do all sorts of things. It didn't do rich text. It was just like, you know, this simple world for doing collaborative text documents and having that work um, as a simple library for people making web apps, which is something that it still is. Like, I messed around with the idea of it a fair bit, and it ended up being this, like, fabric for not just text, but also we've added rich text to it, and we've added uh, JSON OT support, so you can have arbitrary JSON documents and do collaborative operational transfer operations, so you can collaboratively edit a JSON document with some other people. But this is me totally, like, giving a spiel about my own toy, which is... (laughs) So you said OT and operational transform. Can you tell us what that means? Right. They both mean the same thing. OT just stands for operational transform. It's OT is this, it's a set of algorithms that were developed. I mean, like, and the OT algorithms that ShareJS uses are from like 1995 or something. Like this stuff's been in academia for a while. The core algorithm, basically the way to think about it is real time, like subversion. You know, it's like crappy real time Git. That's what the algorithm is. That means that every change that you make is this sort of like special commit in a sense. It then gets propagated immediately to everybody else. And in the same way that something like Git can like handle merges. So if two people are collaboratively editing some code, when I pull your changes in, it'll merge in your changes to merge with my changes. Operational transform has a facility to write a function that, that does that merge. And the way that you write that merge function, you often end up, and this is how ShareJS works, it's conflict-free. So like my individual what? characters will get merged in with your individual characters. Uh, and we just see each other's typing. Hang so, on. How does that work? So if you're sending, if you're sharing some JSON and I yep. delete a field and you modify yep. the field, isn't that a conflict? Well, so you can decide what to do in that case. The way that ShareJS handles that is that if you delete the field while I'm editing the field, then the field gets deleted and all my edits get deleted too. So it's not necessarily what you want in all cases. This is something I'm looking at replacing the JSON type, and this is something that we're looking at changing, like that particular case. But like you have to be very careful with OT, and specifically if you're using the, the built-in types, it's like there's this kind of interesting field of like knowing what all the different operations do when, when they happen collaboratively. Realistically, if you delete a field while I'm editing it, then like tough luck for me, right? Like, you know, if if you saw my changes before you hit the delete button, you'd probably still hit the delete button. So you know, my changes get deleted anyway. But, like, it's great for things like, say, if you have a JSON document that has a list in it, you and I can both be inserting into the list at the same time. And our respective inserts into that list are going to be, like, automatically merged correctly so that they both they all appear in the right places in the list. If someone else deletes something from the start of the list, then, 
like when they see my change, they're not going to think that it's in the wrong place. It all just kind of like works, which so, is really amazing. Just to clarify a little bit, this isn't federated, so it's the, it's got to both point to the same server to do the at least passing the data around, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's designed for like basically Node.js web apps, and there's one server, and then your browser then connects to that server via, well, these days via WebSockets, uh, and then the server manages all of that. ShareJS now supports multiple servers, so you can have multiple front-end servers, but ultimately there's still like a set of servers that all of the clients are connecting to. That said, though, every basically every time I talk about this, someone asks me that question, and it's a question like the question of like, well, could we do this in a federated way? Could we make it so that we have multiple servers and we have these like documents that are long-lived that people can communicate in and you know, like between their different servers? And this is something that I really care a lot about. Um, and actually, to the point that, uh, and this is really exciting news that I haven't told anyone, I've recently accepted a job offer in a company in London called Spatch, and we're actually looking at doing this. So I'm moving over there really soon, and we might. Our plan is to start. Obviously, this is really early days, but we're talking about building exactly this, like a version of ShareJS sort of thing, that also will be federated and also then distributed, and hopefully, like you know, we're considering doing end-to-end encryption on it. So it'll be a fantastic like messaging platform that we that people can use to build applications. Like one of the things. So yeah. Joseph, I'm I'm not totally sure I understand what federation means in the context of a uh, operational transformer, a shared document. Like I understand what it means to have a couple of people editing the same document and having their edits appear in real time for them. But what do you mean with federation? Well, say take email, right? Like email is quite different from Facebook because at Facebook, all of the messages go through Facebook. And with email, if I am at a.com and you're at b.com and I email you, then the email goes from me to my server, to your server, to you. There's no like you know, centralized authority that, you know, gets to control the entire platform. Federation and OT platform is kind of similar. Um, the first thing that we need to do is move ShareJS from something that works kind of like subversion to something that works more like Git, where anyone who's on a document can push and pull their changes to everybody else who's also looking at the same thing. So obviously the first thing that would allow is, you know, if you wanted, you could build a, an OT-based, you know, source control system if you wanted that. But then beyond that, it means that if people want to build a product, like products that are more like, well, like, you know, say something like email, except email with collaborative editing. So it's like a weird hybrid merge of email and Google Docs. Then there's no like one true site that you have to go to to be able to access this product. You can host it yourself. Um, and I can host my own version of it and I can open a, a Spatch wave email collaborative editable thing with you, and we can both be like talking about you know where we're going to go on holidays, you know, with a blurb at the top of the whole thing, describing as we're conversing. You know, we just go back and edit the like the master plan. So that's the dream that we have this kind of you know yeah system that will let us just be able to arbitrarily edit documents. Um, and this is this is sorry, I'm just getting into my regular rant. You guys should absolutely be interrupting me a lot more. <laughs> One of the things I've been it's seeing so with good is. <laughs> James is just too nice. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things we've been seeing with ShareJS, and this is something that I did a lot of work on at Lover. So it turns out that if you've got like, obviously most web apps, right? Like you've got some JSON documents and you've got some JSON stuff, which is your like model. And then you want to render that. So you have something like React and then you render your JSON objects into HTML in the browser. And then as the user interacts or as the data gets modified, then in the browser you'd say, hey, React, my data was changed in this way, please re-render the DOM. With ShareJS, and this is like really cool, 
with ShareJS, you kind of get all of the data side of that whole picture for free. So a web app can just synchronously make changes to the local data model. And as they make those changes, then everyone else can just see the changes live. And that all just works. And, uh, you know, and synchronously in the browser, you don't even have to care that there's anybody else in the world. You're just making changes to this data model and keeping that data model visible in the local client. And then ShareJS takes care of keeping that data model in sync with all of the other clients that are also looking at the same data. But, and this is the thing that gets really exciting when we get into the federation context, it means that with both of these kind of powers combined, we might end up with some sort of like awesome platform where people can actually build web apps and I still have no idea how they're going to be hosted or all sorts of different considerations. Like this is still very like abstract. Hey, like we're building this cool thing or, you know, what can we make stage? But we can make something where people can build a web app, but the web app isn't like it's it, the data itself for the web app is hosted by the platform. So you make a web app and then everybody else who has like a wave server can use your web app with their own data without the, any of the data going to your servers. All the data gets stored on their servers in their company. If messages don't, like, if no one else outside the company is on the document, like if no one outside the company shares that conversation or that collaboration piece, then the data will never leave your company, just like Git, right? Which is really cool. So when you talk about these merging algorithms and operational transformation, it reminds me of distributed systems and, and CRDTs and like how that, that seems like a concern that people have had a lot on the back end where you have to manage these concurrent updates and how do you resolve conflicts and things like that. Is there any overlap with distributed systems and this kind of research? Well, absolutely. I mean, distributed systems is a catch-all term for anything that's distributed. So this is a distributed system because it's distributed across multiple servers, multiple computers. For CRDTs, though, you're absolutely right to bring that up. Um, CRDTs are in many ways seen as like a newer version of OT. Really, they're oh, geez, sort of We should like, probably define that. Sorry. Yeah, oh, sorry. Uh, CRDTs, oh god, I can never remember what it stands for. I always think of it it's standing like, for com- commutative replicative, replicated data types. That's, that's it. Ding, 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 ding. Winner. There are people but that I disagree. Yeah, I think the C cannot stand for commutative and instead stand for something else, like collaborative. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. CRDTs, the basic concept of it is the, with, say, if you take something like Git, if you send me a commit and I want to merge that commit, then I need to know that commit and all of the history, like all of the operations all the other operations that you've done that I don't know about, right? Um, and I look at all the operations that I've done since then, and I merge, I do a merge, and I look at all the operations together, and I say, hey, when you did that commit, I did this commit, those commits merged. Uh, you know, they, they conf- conflicted in this way, or they merged in this way. With CIDTs, you take the, the document, and the document kind of comes along with its entire history. So the document, in a sense, stores every single operation, every single change that's ever happened to it, so that you don't have to worry about keeping all of these operations around. You don't have to say, oh, well, but what if someone comes online and they only got, like, a doc, you know, and they've known about the, the document, they've had operations since, like, two years ago. With OT, you have to keep every single operation for the last two years. With CRDTs, like, you know, and you have to keep them in a database somewhere. With CRDTs, all of those operations are like, you know, baked into the document itself. So you don't have to keep them separately. So there's less bookkeeping. But then your document ends up growing without bounds. So that's the trade-off. CRDTs are getting a lot of popularity lately. Um, I still think there's a lot of benefit in keeping it simple with operational transform. But, I mean, like, it's something that we're looking at and we're wondering if we should be using CRDTs instead. It's, they're basically, like, in many ways, the same technology. The implementation's slightly different. Yeah, so if you see CRDTs banded around, you'll often hear OT banded around as well, because they're basically like two technologies, well, two very similar algorithms that do very similar things. So do you think- I've got some questions for you. One sure. is Bitcoin. That yeah. 
can you, well, maybe Bitcoin is just kind of off in left field and nobody knows what it is, but how does the way that you're doing these shared updates relate to kind of like how Bitcoin does it? Well, the whole point of the Bitcoin algorithm is that you end up getting through a distributed system, you host, like ShareJS relies on a, like right now, it relies on a version number that increase, increases by one with every single change that happens, right? And it's okay. just really, really simple clock. The way that ShareJS's core algorithms work require that single number to be incrementing every time an operation gets applied on the server. Bitcoin, the algorithm Bitcoin takes a distributed network and through a ridiculous amount of work gives you a shared number that increases by one every time a, you know, a new block is mined. So you could use something like Bitcoin to actually run ShareJS in a distributed way, but no one would be able to merge their operations until they waited 10 minutes or until the next block is mined. So that's like, that's what Bitcoin does, which is amazing because now, because the whole point of Bitcoin is that we can take algorithms like financial transactions and, you know, which require a, like a shared lock in a sense. And then Bitcoin can provide that shared lock by doing all of this extra work. And then that means that now we can suddenly have a distributed currency system and a distributed everything else. And this is why lots of distributed people get really excited by Bitcoin as a concept, like an, as, a, as an algorithm, because it lets us do all of these things. The thing that so, people don't talk about as much is that it does it really badly. But yeah. Well, I, I'd be interested to hear more about that. But there's, I, I can't remember the name of it. I've, I've just been searching just now, can't find it. But there is a, um, a new mail service that's based on uh, GPG encryption or maybe it's not a, a service yet, but it's like a, a project. And yeah. it's kind of like Bitcoin in that everybody, like there's there's a shared blockchain type thing and everybody sends their encrypted message to it. And then like everybody checks it all the time to see if there are any encrypted messages that they can decrypt, which means that they're for them. So like a network of people can be like a, the laptop in essence could be quote unquote the server and every time a laptop comes online, it connects to other, like, friend laptops, and friends store each other's messages and that kind of thing. Like, what do you think about that? Or, Well, I mean, that's really cool. The big downside to it, though, is that, I mean, how many emails are sent every day? Like, it's a lot, right? Like, it's in a terabyte range, like, of bytes. I don't have that much bandwidth. Like... That system is really cool, but it, it scales linearly with the number of messages. And there's probably ways that you can, like, you know, shutter it off and say, no, this is just our little private network for just our college or whatever. But then now you've got, you're back to the same problem. Like, the, one of the nice things about Federation is that we have exactly the opposite thing going on, that actually your server only finds out about messages that are for someone in your company, you know, and you only find out about messages that are for you. So the whole network scales, like, as the internet scales, which is beautiful. So we've talked a lot about a lot of different things. It seems like there's kind of a broader trend right now of people realizing that client-side applications have more in common with distributed systems than they used to think with like real-time stuff and, and especially with ShareJS where you're collaborating with multiple people at the same time. Is that a broader trend, do you think, where we can't just hide all that complexity on the server, but we have to deal with it in JavaScript on the client? I sometimes imagine the world, like, have you seen those, like, little videos of, like, you know, stuff swishing around inside the sun, and then, like, the sun has, like, these little jets of fire that shoot out, right? Because mm-hmm. there's, like, some pressure that has to get get released, and it gets shut out. Some I, I science like, juice. Yeah, some science juice. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of the things that go on in the open source world are kind of like that, you know? Like, and, and there are something like this, this IOJS, and, you know, things like it. You know, there's, the, like, these little communities of people that just, like, push really hard for a short period of time, and then, like, something kind of, like, shoots out the side. And then, 
sort of perpendicular to that, there's some other people who are like working on something else that then like shoots out a different way. And sometimes they like, they hit each other and they swirl together and then they, you know, end up, you know, interacting with each other positively or negatively or just making both of their projects different. Like, I feel like there's this push at the moment, like the decentralized push where people are saying, Hey, I don't want Facebook to be in the middle of me and the person I'm talking with because ultimately, like, there's no way that we can in the long run provide security in a situation like that if the government can always just ask Facebook, I'm picking on Facebook, ask Gmail for all of my emails, right? So if all of the communication that I have goes through Google, then the government can always just ask Google to see all my communication. And that's not, I, I don't want that. I don't, like, I don't want them reading all of my yeah. stuff. So there's this push now for like re-decentralizing everything. Hey, we've got the internet. That was cool. Then we made a whole bunch of centralized applications. And that was, that was pretty cool. Like we made a whole bunch of like new ways to communicate and we had people in charge of those. So they didn't just like languish in the, you know, in like, Hey, we want to make this change, but we can't because everyone's got an installed version and that would break backwards compatibility. And now there's a new push for taking all of that stuff and saying, Hey, let's actually like take a lot of the things that we've learned and then make a distributed system again. Like let's, let's build something that works like the internet does. And, you know, like let people actually like communicate by sending a message from my computer to my PC. Like it's crazy that when my friends in the next room and I want to send them a link, I send them a link over GChat and I'm in Australia, right? So that message goes to the US and then all the way back from the US and gets to their room. That's still faster than like reading out the message or any other way that I can send that message to them. But it's also like dumb. It's super dumb. I mean, it doesn't work offline. It doesn't like it's got all these problems. So yeah, I mean, like, there's this new push for, like, you know, to have these new richer client web apps. And there's also a whole bunch of, like, crypto stuff that's going on in the JavaScript world. And a lot of it is this sort of idea, like, oh, people actually have, like, rich applications. And actually, I was chatting to my uncle, who's been in the computing world for, like, oh, God, since before I was born. I'm not that young. He's just, I don't know, he seems old to me. Um, Like, he got an electrical engineering degree, and he worked at Tandem, and who bought his old company, Burroughs, I think it was. And he was telling me about these, like, the first hard disk that was in Australia that they got. And it was this like giant metal drum that took about a minute to spin up to speed. Um, and like this, this giant disk of copper that they had to install. Anyway, it cost them like over a million dollars for a 10 megabyte hard drive, which was huge. But he was saying like, there's obviously like the whole computing history has been a history of people moving to thin clients and do all the work on the server and then rich clients that do all the work on the client and then with dumb servers and then back and forth and back and forth. And like in many ways, like as much as it's, it's glib to say so, the new push for like rich client applications is the same thing all over again, right? We had the web. Now it's dumb clients again. Okay. And now we've got JavaScript in the web and JavaScript can do all these amazing things. We have web sockets. We have ways for using web sockets for your client can, to connect to multiple servers which now lets us do a bunch of distributed stuff. We've got WebRTC in the works. Okay, great. Now we can go back to having rich clients again, which is going to let us kind of build these networks and systems. Um, so a- another question with the, the the federated idea, right? So, yeah. I mean, we, we pick on Facebook, we pick on Google, but really if the NSA, like email is really federated, right? Like, right. I mean, it, it is stored on web servers, but the idea is that it's a federated protocol that I can send from one provider to another provider right? And it gets to me. But still, there's only in any realm of competition, there's only like three main companies that generally rise to the top. There's Microsoft, Apple, Google. There's Gmail, Yahoo, Hotmail. There's Blendtec, Vitamix, and Ninja, right? (laughs) Right. Like, and, And so, like, let's say we have this awesome federated capability. Like, how would we get that service out in a way that it's not just federated between three or four companies, but like it would be truly federated in this more private sense. 
Right. So, I mean, I guess I still use Gmail. For all that I complain about centralized services, I love Gmail. I think it's a great product. I think the people who make Gmail do a great job. I really like it being email being federated because it means that if, if Facebook goes evil and decides to sell all my data to companies, then there's nothing I can do. But if email goes, if Google goes evil, I can move all my data away. Like, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people who really wish that everyone did actually run their own servers, but I'm actually not all that worried about it. Like, I think that if we have a federated system, a system that can federate, and then all of a sudden, like, uh, and you're, and there's only a few monopolistic providers or a few providers that actually like, you know, like Spatch that will end up running our own servers that then people can use and we will provide the, you know, the system for lots and lots of users. That's our, our hope. But we also, base this on an algorithm and a system where you can actually host it all yourself if you want to. I think that you end up with something where people can then feel free to like, you know, like choose your own adventure server style where, you know, like, sure, like I use GitHub, but then if GitHub turned into massive jerks, then we can just like have our own Git server. And that's, you know, it's, it's going to take some work to set up, but we can set that up ourselves. Um, I personally really like that. I like that. I like giving people that sort of freedom, even if they don't actually exercise that freedom and just end up using whichever the big providers are. Like, what, what do you guys think? Do you, do you think that it's important that we actually do move away from things like Google and Facebook? For oh, man. And- I feel like it's important, but I don't know if I have ever put my money where my mouth is and actually done anything <laughs> about it. It's, yeah. It feels nice to say I think it's important, though. That feels good. Well, I, I get more and more annoyed by them. But, like, with Google, you can reasonably replace some of their products with competing products or make something, you know, if you wanted to build it yourself. But with Facebook... That's where, I mean, it's completely not federated. There's no way you could build a competing Facebook because you wouldn't be able to message anyone on Facebook. Right. So I think, I think Facebook is worse than Gmail is because if Gmail really gets sucky, well, I, I use Mailgun and I do some stuff there and I forward a few things back and forth. You know, I went yeah. to a conference up in, uh, it was Open Source Bridge in Portland and they had kind of a keynote about getting out there, building distributed systems like you're talking about. So that we could take back the power that we were losing with, you know, the NSA and this lack of federation. And it was all well and good, but when it comes right down to it, very few people are building products anybody wants to use that's like that, you know? And there's just so much to be gained from having a company like Google behind who's building your product. I mean, nobody would have built Wave, even though Wave was a big failure. (laughs) It was a still cool product. Nobody would have got together. Six people wouldn't have got together and built Wave. It was too much work. And... I don't see somebody, maybe somebody will replace Gmail, you know, but it's going to take a lot more people realizing that they can get together and build something really cool that's really difficult. More people building big projects. Joe, are you saying that the financial incentives aren't there for people to build federated things? No, no, no. I think it's for the users. I think it's the the incentive isn't there for the users. There's just not enough products that are being built that are compelling compared to the non-federated products. I guess straight out, it's easier to build a non-federated product, technically, and then when you want to improve it, you don't have to convince everybody who has an installed version of whatever the product is to upgrade. Like, you just upgrade your servers, and then everybody gets the latest and greatest version, because it's a website. Like, you can see why it happens that way, you know? Yeah, So, I'm going to bring back up Bitcoin. So, if I understand correctly, they have something where they have a couple of blessed clients, and if more than 50% of the network upgrades to a new version of blessed clients, then everybody else just kind of is like SOL, like you have to upgrade because 50% of people did, so the network demands it. Do you think that that kind of thing could take place in a federated system? Well, it's harder. I mean, like, as I said, the, the whole point of Bitcoin is that you have, like, you, you have a distributed system that 
creates and, and hosts a centralized system. And hilariously, like when 50% of the clients do something, then we do X. It's something that you can only really do in a centralized way. Like in a distributed system, I don't know who all the centers are. I don't know where they are. So it, by just by virtue of being a distributed system, it's hard to do something like that. Like what you hope is that you hope that there's network effects. And when people start upgrading, then you hope that everybody else starts upgrading. And at some point, you know, you can then break backwards compatibility and say, well, you didn't upgrade your client for a year. Sorry, like you need to do that. Well, you didn't upgrade your server. You need to do that. That's really important. You can no longer talk to the rest of the network. Yeah, I mean, it's an open, it's an ongoing problem. Like, one of the interesting things with OT, which we were talking about, and I, I mean, like, this is very, like, you know, pie in the sky prototype, like, we have these kind of set of ideas that we've been talking about, is the idea of, like, having, you know, some, like, you know, versions of the application. So I have some data on my, you know, like, if you make an application that sits on the top of this platform, then your application says, hey, this is the schema that the data should look like. And this is the schema for what the data should look like if the application is version one, you know, schema version one or something. And then, Uh like, using OT, then we can say, oh, hey, the application now uses schema version two. So we're going to use OT to be able to actually, like, apply an operation to all these documents to change them to the latest schema version. And as long as the application itself is backwards compatible with earlier versions of the data, then it should mean that we can kind of get this sort of like forwards compatibility across like effectively data migrations for free, which is really nice. And maybe even like the application could be stored there somewhere. I don't know. We're still trying to figure that out. So let's say that it goes to version, like the protocol version two happens at document revision 57. Everyone has to converge on document version 57 before anybody moves on to 58 that's in the new protocol version 2. Would that yeah. be correct? Yeah, but the data okay. model, like, the data system will take care of that. That's, like, separate from your application now. But the data model will, like, get you up to speed anyway. The thing that you would still need is the client would still need to be able to understand the data at the previous, like, you know, data version or whatever, so that it could still, like, display that to you. Or, you know, or, like, if you're hosting some content, and then I join that, but I've got a newer version of the client, then it would be kind of like a dick move if I went and just updated all the documents to the latest version, and now you're like, ah, crap, I can't read this. So there'll have to be some, you know, like, so my client will presumably need to be able to understand the previous version of the data. So it can say, well, you know, I understand the new data version, but also all this data is the old version. So I'm just going to leave it as is and wait until whoever's, you know, I don't know, maybe the, you know, someone is, you know, effectively the host for that particular document, and then maybe I wait until that person upgrades their server version you know, to the latest version of the software, and then they can they can do the data migration. Um, and when that happens, then I'll just be able to native, you know, naturally understand the new data. So I I love like this kind of the algorithm idea of this, but I think Dave's got a more practical question. <laughs> Ever the sure. pragmatist? No, no. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> can you tell us? Let's talk about ShareJS specifically for a few minutes. But can you yeah. tell us? Uh, let's say I've got a requirement in my application I'm developing to have collaborative editing of something. Um, how would I go about using ShareJS to do that? So I should point out that currently ShareJS is 0.7, and I have a, a piece of work that I want to do, which is going to bring it to 1.0, which is probably like regular like open source workers' guilt of like, oh god, I'm sorry, it's still buggy, and there's all these issues that I want to fix. Um, <laughs> what you would do <laughs> is you would install ShareJS, and you'd install ShareJS 0.7. To, you need a database, and currently... So I, I rewrote all of ShareJS when I started at Lava, which is where I was working for the last couple of years, so that we could make ShareJS work in a like in a cluster of servers. So I mean, we, I think we at peak had about when I left, we had twelve servers running. I think six instances each of our front end server software, um, including ShareJS. And then any operation, any server could have a client connecting, and any client could communicate and collaborate collaboratively edit documents that any other 
clients on any connected to any other servers you know we're looking at so to make that work you need redis but you can make shareJS work in a single server context and for that you probably should install mongodb which is the only database that shareJS currently officially supports which i'm sad about because i kind of hate mongo and you install shareJS and you then you need to so shareJS has a server component and a client component um, you need to install it on the server the client then needs to be able to talk to the server and Probably the best way to do that now is WebSockets. Um, Share.js, Node people got mad at me because it was one big piece of software and I was, you know, doing Node.js packages. How uncool. I know, I'm, I'm like the uncoolest. So I broke it up into a few different, like, packages. There's like LiveDB that handles all the database side. And then there's Share.js itself, which mostly, like, is a wrap around the database bit and provides the network protocol and the client API so that your client application can actually use Share.js. So then you, you need to put the, the client-side JavaScript in your client, and you need to connect the client-side to the server-side via WebSockets. The best way to do that, again, that's like roll your own at the moment, um, although there's a ShareJS WebSocket implementation that you can use. Oh, God, I should make a really good tutorial for all of the new stuff. It's, <laughs> you it's just all, got some more guilt. I know, so <laughs> You just saw guilt. the I, guilt grow. <laughs> <laughs> I had all of these grand plans after I left Lever to like, yeah, I've got like got a few months before starting at Spatch. I should like, you know, like do all these changes we wanted to make for a while and clean up the documentation and fix the website and then like bring out version one today. And then I, I got back to Australia and, and it's really nice outside here. Like I, I <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you look at my like GitHub at the moment, it's like all of these like sporadic dots for the last like two years as I've been maintaining all these different bits of open source code, and then the last like three months there's almost nothing. It's just <laughs> this big wide open space with one little dot when someone filed a pull request. But yeah, um, I, I was chatting to to the guys at Lever. Um, ShareJS is not unmaintained. The the guys at Lever, um, since they're building their business on top of the software, um, are actually planning on on like stepping up and doing a lot of the maintenance work of ShareJS. Uh, going forward, so it won't just be me, which is great because I've got all these like crazy like federated systems that I want to build. So don't don't fear. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so you have your client side that talks to the server side, and then you need to like have ShareJS. ShareJS needs to kind of own the documents, which is a little bit onerous. But the reason why this is the case is because if a ShareJS client makes a change to a document, then all of the other ShareJS clients need to know about that change immediately. Like that's the whole point. If you start willy-nilly making changes to your database independently of how the, your data is being modified in ShareJS then the clients won't know about that. And then when they go to make their own change, they'll get very confused. So ShareJS kind of like takes on responsibility for at least some of the documents in your database. And then from the client, then you can execute commands like, hey, subscribe me to this document. Hey, run this query against the database and tell me not just when any of the documents get changed, but also like when this query gets changed, when there's new documents that get added to the result set of this query. And then you say like, hey, on this document, at this path, so like uh, the documents, I don't know, maybe it's got a shopping list and you go like the document dot shopping list at position zero, I want to insert a new item, and that item looks like this. With ShareJS, you don't just say, like, change the document wholesale to this whole thing. You can do that, but then ShareJS doesn't do diff match patch or anything. It just merges that blind, in a sense, and then clobbers everyone else's changes. So you make your client say, like, hey, at this particular path, then make this change. And then all of the other clients who are looking at that same document are going to see that. So they can all subscribe to the changes on that document um, through the client side API and say, hey, like, subscribe me to this document. So subscribe me, tell me when any changes happen. And then that function will get a call saying, like, hey, there was this operation. It'll tell you what the op- actual operation was. So if in your client, if you want to, like, do something really clever where you, like, do, you know, piecewise re-rendering and insert a new item in your in your HTML list, you could do that. Um, or you can just take a new look at the document snapshot. And by the time that function's called, then... 
presto, like the document on that client side has already been updated and everyone has that power. So all clients can make changes. They can make those changes synchronously where they say insert this new item. By the time that function calls returns, the document snapshot contains that new item. And you will, like each client then in a sense sees a slightly different like view of history because my change happened immediately, but everyone else's changes happened later. And the operations that you actually see, if you took all the operations that you saw and the ones that you made and applied them all in order, it would all work and it would all make sense, uh, which is cool. So that's if you want to do like JSON editing, and if you want to do text editing, then it's a little bit easier. And there's some examples where you say like, just take this uh, ShareJS document and bind it to this text area that's on my page, um, and then ShareJS will take care of like doing all the text changes. We also have rich text editing using QuillJS. Um, have you guys met Jason, who wrote Quill? Mm-hmm. Nope. Right, yeah, we had awesome. him on the show. Oh, I right. wasn't on that one. Sorry. Um, he's cool. Um, anyway, he, I worked with him on, uh, adding a rich text type to ShareJS. Uh, ShareJS, like, the, part of the, one of the big things that I changed from Wave, Wave had this idea of, like, this Wave data model. And then they wanted to have these, like, cool little gadgets, like a yes, no, maybe gadget. So there was, like, three columns and with a button at the top of each column. And you would say, someone would say, like, hey, does anyone want to, like, you know, go skydiving next week? And then you would click on the yes column and your face would appear in that column and everyone could just do that, which is, actually an amazing tool, um, super useful. But to make that work for Wave, they had to do all these hacks to kind of add this like JSON-like data on top of like the Wave data model that was in the Wave data model is kind of XML thing. With ShareJS, I said, all right, every document can have its own type and can have its own operational transform semantics. And so if you want, you can have text documents and you know, or you can have rich text documents. And rich text documents have all the semantics to support rich text. And Jason wrote that and he wrote Quill.js, which is the rich text editor. So with ShareJS, you can have rich text documents. And for that, I think you end up putting Quill on your website, and then you tell ShareJS about the Quill rich text type. And then you can just say, hey, bind this Quill document in my page to this ShareJS document. And if everyone does that, then they can all see each other's changes. So yeah, easy, right? I need a lot more examples. I, I, a lot of the examples still haven't been updated to JJS 0.7, which was the like, you know, oh god, oh god, like I'm building a product at a startup, like we just need something to work, oh god, version that I started working on, started last year and I started at Lever. And I don't know if you guys have worked at startups, but there's not a lot of time to sit down and breathe and make good documentation for your stuff. At least that was my experience. If, if somebody wants to come in and figure all this stuff out and contribute documentation, what's the best way to do that? You should submit a pull request to ShareJS. I love pull requests, and I love pull requests that are by people who are competent and well-meaning and well and very knowledgeable. Like, please look through the code and, and run the tests and stuff. Uh, although ShareJS's tests are... Oh God, it's, it's, just, it's just a big sea of guilt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, please submit pull requests and help out. I'd really appreciate it. Also, I should point out, and this is a blatant plug, if you're interested in working on this crazy OT-based distributed system thing that we're going to build at Spatch in London, then you should absolutely email me because we're looking for like smart, passionate distributed en- systems engineers to help us build this like crazy new platform in the sky, which I'm really excited about. And yeah, we got funded by Techstars, and yeah, it's all like we're all in the like the planning phase in a sense at the moment like we're we're building things and chatting about architecture and stuff and this is like absolutely the best time to get involved if you want to and that would be really exciting to have more smart people online and on board so yeah that's my blatant plug for our new company awesome um i've been doing a lot of the talking uh what do you guys think about all of this i feel like i would love to hear your thoughts you're good at talking yeah it's it's really interesting i mean just what it can do and how it works did we get into how it actually works on the back end? No, I can explain some of that if you're. Yeah, interested. you mentioned Mongo and the Node server, but not too much. 
Yeah, so the way that it works on the back end, if you've got a single server, then it's, I mean, reasonably simple, but it's reasonably simple for me, and I've been thinking about this for the last, like, five, six years. Um, <laughs> on the back end, I mean, the client sends a message over WebSocket saying, hey, I've got this operation. Um, that goes back to the server. All of the operations are in Mongo at the moment. Um, you can make your own, uh, the people have made Postgres adapters and so on, um, and different things. There's an API for what the, like, the actual messages to the database saying, like, hey, if you want to implement your own ad- database adapter, you have to implement a method for, like, you know, ask the database if there's an operation, get this set of range, range of, um, operations from the database. But the server can say, like, you know, the client says, hey, I have this operation, goes to the server, the server looks at the list, big list of everyone else who's subscribed, and it applies the operation locally, so locally on the server, transforms it if it needs to, which is to say, like, does the git merge equivalent thing, then resends it out to all the other clients who are subscribed, and then they can all merge it locally with any changes that they've made in the meantime. If you have multiple servers at the moment, the only way that happens is uh, you need a Redis instance, and then I'm using Redis PubSub, which unfortunately adds a single point of failure, although Redis is ridiculously reliable. But a single source of failure, point of failure in the sense that the service like broadcasts that that operation happened to Redis, and then Redis is responsible for rebroadcasting that out to all of the other servers that are interested in that document. And then the, the merge logic is all contained in the front-end code? The merge logic is all in the OT type, which is both in the front-end code and the back-end code. So all of the merge code is in the operational type, transform type itself. My idea with this was that if anyone else wants to build an OT-based system, then you shouldn't have to re-implement how JSON OT works because it's a real pain in the ass. Um, you shouldn't have to re-implement text. You shouldn't have to re-implement rich text. So we've got a set of like standard operational transform types that are each in their own repo. They're all it's, it's, own, its own GitHub organization, which is github.com slash OT types. They obey a standard API, and so rich text just plugged in there, and then there was like no changes in ShareJS to add rich text support. But that inside those types is the like those types then define what operations are. As far as ShareJS is concerned, operations are just these opaque JSON blobs that it can JSON stringify and JSON parse. The OT type itself defines a transform function that says if you get two operations that happen at the same time against the same document then what would operation A look like if it was chronologically after operation B? You know, or if you swap them around, then what would B look like if it happened after A? Uh, and that's the only hard function that you have to implement to get an operational transform type yourself. So actually, there's no reason why OT can't have conflicts. It just means that the transform function would have to say, if operation, like if two operations come in and they both made changes to the same line of text, then operation A, which is the one that we care about right now, if operation A happened after operation B, it should actually look like insert a conflict marker at this position instead of just try and merge all of the characters together right. anyway. Oh, sure. So what defines an operational transform is how it handles the merge. Yeah, yeah, in a sense. Like, what the operations are, and, like, people doing operational transform mm-hmm. talk about, you know, on CIDTs, they talk about this idea of um, intent preservation, that your operations should, like, preserve the intent of the user. So if the user's intent was to insert a character at this particular position, then that's that's great. You know, if their intent was, and this is how we think of it for like source control systems, the intent was to change this line or delete this line of code and insert this new line of code, which is subtly different, right? Like if that's the intent, then if two people try and make changes to the same line of code at once, then maybe the best way to preserve both of their intent is just to put in conflict markers. But that's that's kind of the idea. So yeah, so the operational transform type is yeah defined by the operations and then defined by well, yeah, exactly right. Defined by the transform itself. Um, the OT type as well has an apply function, which is like, you know, what happens if you're actually trying to apply this operation to the document, which is obviously important, so that the documents that both the client and server can be updated and then resaved back to the database or locally presented back to the client application. Uh, but yeah. That's so Joseph, can you tell us uh, some examples of applications you've known about that have been built with ShareJS? 
So I worked at Lover for the last two years, and Lover is an application for doing basically Gmail for hiring. So it's Gmail for recruiters in a sense, where you can watch candidates going through a job pipeline. And like you like, how does what does it have anything to do with like collaborative editing? Well, actually, if I'm looking at a job candidate and then one of my other coworkers messages them, I want to see that immediately. You know, um, like uh, at Lover, Nate Nate Smith, who's the CEO and is as I said, taller than too tall Nate, which is very confusing for everybody. Uh, he worked on Derby.js. Have you guys, do you know, know about De- Derby? Is that a thing? Yeah, I do. Know about? The, um, yeah. the work tracker and uh, no, for uh, um, Agile teams? No, no, no it's, no, it's no, kind no. of like a Meteor-ish thing, right? Yes, it's oh, a Meteor-ish okay. thing. Derby is a web framework that's built on top of ShareJS. It's kind of like, um, I mean, it's got its own templating system and so on. It's a, it's a, like, it's a full... I mean, in some ways, it's similar to React, except it's got ShareJS bolted in in the back end. React, by the way, works fantastically well with ShareJS, except that ShareJS like can tell could tell React a little bit more information. You could say like, "Hey, you know, there's there's this one item that I'm inserting into this list." React has to like ge- regenerate the DOM, then do a diff of the DOM. But with ShareJS, you can just actually make the change that you wanted. But anyway, so Nate worked on Derby, and when Nate and I, you know, put our minds together, we bolted Derby on top of ShareJS. So Derby supports complete, like, full real-time editing of everything. And Lever then, built on top of Derby, then supports all of that. So the entire application is built on top of Derby, which itself is completely powered by ShareJS. Um, there was another small company, I'm not sure if they're still around, called uh, Rizoma, R-I-Z-Z-O-M-A. Um, and they were basically trying to remake Google Wave, the product, um, on top of ShareJS, which is really exciting. That was this team of, like, six Russian guys who worked on that a few years ago. There's a, a bunch of like other random things. It's it's used in a few different places for like you know collaborative job interview editing, you know job interview like pair programming sessions and things like that. There hasn't been like because I haven't like updated the website in a while and I haven't written many examples and stuff. I haven't been like pushing it publicly a lot. But I mean, as I said, I had all these like grand ideas of like releasing Wonderdo or ShareJS, you know, by fixing a lot of the outstanding bugs and uh, refactoring some of the code a bit, fixing up the tests. Um, and then, like, you know, yelling about it a lot. There's still a couple features that ShareJS is notably missing, including uh, cursor support. So you can't actually, if you're editing text documents, you can't see where everyone else's cursors are. Although that's supported on the client, it's just not supported by the um, the distributed, you know, like, Redis, you know, layer thing at the moment. So that's the only part missing for that. But yeah, um, I don't know. There's, there's more examples of people using it. People are starting to use the rich text editing. Uh, at Lover, I know they want to use that for having like a, basically an email client built into the application itself. Um, it turns out people will really want this. I think it's crazy to give a hiring company, well, I, I think it's crazy to give a hiring company access to your corporate email, but recruiters love it that they can, if I'm a recruiter and I'm chatting to some candidate, then I go on holidays uh, and someone else picks up the slack, then they can see the conversation that I've had with the candidate. So yeah, so Lover is kind of ended up with this email client kind of bolted into the the client and yeah, and they want to have rich text editing, which then obviously then lets people collaboratively edit an email to a candidate if they're not sure how to word, you know, their email to because they're trying to hire Bill Clinton or something and they want to make sure they get it right. Yeah, I don't know. There's lots of other random things. Uh this okay. this researcher in the Netherlands made a, a DOM collaborative DOM editor using ShareJS, which is really cool. Whoa. Uh, yeah. I don't know, different things. There's a bunch of researchers who've been making crazy things, which I really like. But yeah. What, what would you guys want to build this stuff? Like, if we made this big, like, federated system, what would you want to make with it? Like, does anything spring to mind? Uh, I would build a to-do list, because that's what you <laughs> make with JavaScript libraries. <laughs> uh, would it be a to-do MVC? No, it, it would be a to-do Federated. OT. Federated to-do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, go. I go with federated cool. wiki. Yeah, Federated Wiki. <laughs> Honestly, I would like to see 
an email version 2.0, kind of like somewhere between email and wave, not too avant-garde, but like a stepping stone, something right. that's like, um, like graceful up. Now, what do you call it? That's graceful degradation. The other one where progressive know, you, enhancement, progressive enhancement. Yes. Thank you. So like, you know, like if I'm using Gmail that supports this V2 and you're using Yahoo that just adopted V2, then you know, we get these V2 features when we communicate together. I, like, that's that's the thing that I'd really like to see. Can we call it speedy yeah. mail? Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be a great name for it. So, I, uh, I'm going to say this publicly because I, I think Spatch is a terrible name for our company. Uh, one of my Australian friends immediately was like, oh, Spatch, like Spatula. And that's all that's stuck in my mind. Um, yeah. <laughs> Spatula yeah, City. what I thought of. Right. Okay, great. That's a, that's another similar validation. Um <laughs> Uh, we might end up changing the name, but, uh, <laughs> um, it's supposed to be short for dispatch, but that was the original oh. premise that the company was founded on to make a better version of email because people spend like 20% of our time on email and email is kind of crappy. It's so true. I just want something where what I'd like to see the, for the future is notifications to become a different protocol and then the new email to be for person to person communication. Now I, I want like 90% of what comes into my inbox to merge into the thing that shows up on my iPhone and, and on my Mac here on the right-hand side with all the, you know, reminder crap and, you know, this person just got on Skype. Oh, they just got off Skype. Like, all that crap, that feed, I want to have separated and just be able to focus on communication in some tool. Yeah, the thing I'm really excited to build personally is... um <laughs> And I mean, this is crazy. I've been talking about this for years, and it's like I, I did this giant detour to ShareJS just so that I can have the infrastructure that I need for it. I want to have a system where, um, when I'm editing code, like instead of having like a, a big IDE or something, like everything in one big application, I want to have my compiler as something like my editor should just be editing an OT document, and then my compiler just sits live watching the document be edited, and then adds like highlighting and adds autocomplete suggestions and all sorts of different things that the compiler knows about. And then, like, my editor then can just see those, those edits and then mark that up inside the editor itself. So it can show me all the autocomplete suggestions and stuff. And then, like, different compilers, if I'm editing different languages, different compilers would then do that for different languages. So I could just use Vim or use one language, one editor that would have, like, amazing built-in, like, language support for all these different languages. And then have, like, crazy, like, development tools where, like, my unit test runner could just run the unit tests and then annotate my, like, source code with all of the you know, errors and stuff that it found. I think I would probably do something similar if I had a bunch of time and a bunch of shared JS expertise. And the, the word I've thought about for this would be semantic version control, where basically you have something like Git, but that's aware of the language you're working in. Uh, you know, one of the things that makes Git really weak is you say, if you like move a function to a different file or to a different place in a file, Git sees that as subtract these lines and add these lines over here. When really you've actually taken a unit of your programming language, a function, and relocated it and maybe tweaked it as you did so. And um, I think that a document-aware, maybe even in the language itself, um, system could really help with something like that and make our lives a lot better. I know this is a problem lots of people have tried to solve, but no one has solved it the right way or the way that I would like it solved. It, I mean, it seems like it would Which work Which is really the right way. Well, yeah, that's the implicit thing. Just pair programming stuff. Like, that's mm -hmm. still... You, you see new ideas in that all the time because no one has, like, made the solution that everyone likes yet. And it seems like you could do some really cool stuff with that. Also related to Dave and Joseph's ideas, too. Jameson, we have it. It's called a desk. <laughs> so Remote what, pair programming. There we go. 
So I, I have to admit that uh, most of my backend work I'm still doing in Ruby. So it'd be really interesting to see if, you know, there was some way to implement this in a way that I could build into the apps that I built for my clients in Rails or Sinatra or something. Or, you know, oh. put this alongside that so that, you know, uh, maybe updates get federated through to another system and still I, I would love that. use that back end. So I'm, I'm curious as to what your APIs and protocols are and if there's a way for somebody to just set up ShareJS just the back end and then, you know, use it as needed where needed. So ShareJS, that would be great. Actually, the very first demo that I did of ShareJS, I had a like native iOS, well, not sorry, it wasn't iOS, it was native macOS client application. And I was doing collaborative editing between my native application and a web document, which was really cool. Because of course, there's no, there's nothing that's, you know, that's JavaScript specific about it, except the code's in JavaScript. Uh, the thing that you need to do is you need to take the OT types and then you need to port them to, to Ruby, which is much easier than you, you would think. I ported one of them to from JavaScript to C, like native C, um, a couple of years ago. And the C version was only like eight lines of code longer than the JavaScript version. Um, and it ran like 10 times faster, which is kind of nifty to see. Um, well, if you've it's written easy. it in C, then you can extend Ruby with the C library. Right, yeah. I haven't ported all of them across yet. I'm currently working on a replacement for the current JSON OT type. Um, there's a few features that we want to add support for. Mm-hmm. I want to add support for like arbitrary move- arbitrarily moving items from like reparenting items inside the JSON tree, um, which a lot of people want, and that's useful for a lot of different work cases. But yeah, like so the protocols, there's a, a protocol between the client and server, which is the like basically the WebSocket protocol of what messages it's sending back and forth. If you had a pure Ruby server, then if you implemented that, uh, another server that to talk that protocol, then the ShareJS client would just work. And another option is if you want to go the ShareJS, like if you wanted to have a Node.js server that managed the WebSocket connection coming in, there's a protocol where, like for distributing across multiple ShareJS servers, where uh, basically it's a pub-sub system where it'll publish messages to Redis and then other servers listen to that. So if you wrote a Ruby program that could listen to those messages and send messages of its own, then your Ruby server could also talk the same language and could communicate with that. The trouble with a lot of this stuff is that, like, it, it goes back to what I was talking about before, that if you've got, like, a client, like, if one client is OT dumb, and it says, hey, just put this giant thing into this document, like, replace this document wholesale with this other data. If there's any OT clients, they can't merge that. Like, they'll just see it as the entire document got replaced. And if they've got any, like, concurrent edits where they're making some changes, and they want those changes to be mer- merged intelligently, then you've now just deleted all of the changes. So you really want, like some set of your documents or maybe all your documents to be in an OT system rather than like mixing and matching. You can read back out of the OT system, but if you're doing any writes, you want those writes to be done with the operation, not with like, you know, just dumb, like, you know, kick everything off and then replace the entire document, uh, which is a bit of a pain. So that's the only thing, like that's that's what's missing. But um, I would absolutely love to see a Ruby port of all of the OT types, or if we made a, a C version of all of them, which we probably will at some point, then like expose that through Ruby. And then we could absolutely have a, a Ruby server. Um, the wire protocol, by the way, is well documented and it's up to date and everything. And there's a wiki page that I can give you a link to if you want, which is the like, you know, just documentation on what messages go back and forth and how that all works. So it's just a case of implementing a server that does that. Awesome. If people want to know more about uh, ShareJS or get involved in the project, uh, what are the best ways to do that? Well, you should either submit pull requests or email me. Um, I actually really love, I find it really motivating, like speaking of like, you know, emotions around open source projects and guilt. Um, I find it really motivating when people email me like, hey, your project's cool. Like, do you want to chat? I'm just chatting to people over Skype or something. And yeah, so I actually love that. And if you want to get involved, or at least if you find ShareJS really exciting, 
you should email me and say like, hey, do you want to just chat? And then we can like talk over Skype and we can find a time zone that works for both of us. And you can tell me what, why you're excited about it. And I can be like, yay, that's cool. Now I'm more motivated to work on it. Um, and I can give you lots of advice on what is or isn't hard with ShareJS right now. So that's what I would recommend. But also, by all means, like check it out, the project, you know, submit pull requests. I love pull requests, even though I'm sometimes bad at getting back to them, but I've been trying to get better lately. So, yeah. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and do picks. Jameson, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have three picks. First one is a blog post called Software Engineers Should Write, and it kind of makes the case for why it's important for people in engineering to write, and, and not just technical writing, any kind of writing. Um, it's ground that's been trod pretty well, but uh, I just really liked that uh, this is a very well-written post about why you should write well, so it's a good example of, of what it's talking about. The second pick is a twine game it's a text game called my father's long legs and it's kind of this like creepy unsettling it's there's no jump scares or like gruesome things or anything it's just like a really weird unsettling feeling that kind of grows the more you play it so i thought that was cool and they do some cool just some cool effects that make the game more interesting and the last pick is an old paper called can programming be liberated from the von neumann style um, and it's by this guy named John Backus, who is uh, the guy who Backus Normal Form is in, named after. I think he was part of the creation of Fortran as well, just one of the uh, like old luminaries in computer science. And he talks about how computer architecture is very tied up with imperative programming and statements that modify locations in memory. And then you go on to the next statement. And it's kind of presenting functional programming as an alternative to that, but also an alternative at like the hardware level even. So, and then it gets into some math that goes over my head, but just the prose arguments are, were pretty interesting to read. Those are my picks. All right, Joe, what are your picks? All right. Uh, my first pick is Brandon Sanderson's new book it just came out. I think it was yesterday and. I pre-purchased it. It's the second book in his uh, Reckoner series. The first one was Steelheart. Awesome books. Just absolutely beautiful. Steelheart was probably my favorite book of 2014. So I was so excited when the new one came out, and I love it already. I only read a little bit last night for like five or ten minutes, and I'm already just completely absorbed into it. I can't wait for this podcast to get over so I can go read it some more. (laughs) Is it science fiction? Yeah, it's kind of a dystopian, slightly dystopian future. Brandon Sanderson is just completely amazing. He has the, he's famous for inventing new magic systems, and it's an unbelievable book. And I'm can't wait for the second book. I'm sure it'll be just as good as the first book. The first book like completely blew my mind at the end of it. So you picked it, and you haven't read it. No, I haven't mm-hmm. read all of it yet. Just shame, read 10 minutes. shame. Oh, so you're only picking the first ten minutes? <laughs> yes, got it. The first ten minutes, good. So next I, week, I know what you're going to be picking. <laughs> <laughs> I have read the first book. So I'm picking the series. How about that? <laughs> I got it. There you go. There's a workaround for you. I'm willing to bet your reputation, Dave, that it's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'll take that bet. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my first pick. And my second pick, I just found out, I was checking out the Forbes 30 under 30 and the guy under education was a guy who invented, I don't know how to say it, Kano or Kano, K-A-N-O dot M-E. And it's uh, this like nephew challenged him to make a computer that was as fun as Legos to build. 
And so he did, and he used Raspberry Pi underneath it, and you get this kit that you can plug in things just like Legos and build a computer, and then you can program Pong on it or Snake or Mine. It gets you into doing Minecraft mods. This and is so, so cool. Yeah, it's way, way awesome for like getting your kids into, into programming. I've, that's, I've been on a, a big kick about that lately. Yeah, and, this is really cool. Yeah. So I'm very excited about this. I'm really, really jonesed and can't, I haven't ordered mine yet. So I'm picking it again before I've consumed it. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> there goes my reputation. <laughs> but I mean, the company's like done awesome. They've been fundraising. So it's got to be pretty cool. And I'm really excited. I think it's a cool product. I want to support it. So I want to get the word out. So Very that's nice. my, I have a second final pick. All right, Dave, what are your picks? Okay. Do you guys have guilty pleasures? <laughs> a few. I have one and I've been sitting on it and I'm finally going to pick it. Nobody knows this about me, but well, the two, this is a two part pick. The first part is not the guilty part. First part is a game, online game. It's a uh, multiplayer online battle arena called League of Legends. I know Jameson knows about it, even though I think he probably doesn't like it. But anyway, <laughs> it's called League of Legends. It's really fun. Uh, pretty addictive habit-forming game, and it's free to play. But here comes the guilty pleasure part. There is an online gamer of this game who records his games, and he talks about them while he does it, and he is hilarious, and his games are really entertaining to watch. I actually enjoy watching him play this game more than I enjoy playing it myself. His name is Ankle Spankin. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Please say that again. Please repeat that. <laughs> it, 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 I, said I must have had a, something crazy in my ear. I said it was a guilty pleasure, Joe. <laughs> it's, <laughs> his name is Ankle Spanking. Anyway, if you just Google Ankle Spanking YouTube, you can watch any of his games. He does like one every day. And he's really entertaining to watch. And now you all know about my guilt. Your secret shame. shame. This is my secret. <laughs> I'm actually excited about this because I love watching StarCraft 2 way more than I like playing it. I watch a lot of Twitch TV. And so I don't so, think I don't think it's shameful. I got a bunch of friends that are way into like the MOBAs like League of Legends and I just don't get it. I play them. I'm even in the beta for this Blizzard one that just came out and I play and I'm just like, "Ah, but I'm excited to watch somebody who's actually really good <laughs> go. and entertaining." <laughs> well, this just this just proves that on the internet you can take any guilt and turn it into pride by having a group of people who tell you it's okay. Well, and I didn't understand the guilty part until he got to his name. Then I understood. <laughs> yeah, speaking of his name, I really need to get a soundboard together for the show, and then I can speaking have Dave, a soundboard. Dave saying you should really get a microphone. <laughs> Do I really sound that bad to you guys? Oh, yeah, yeah. super staticky today. It's absolutely terrible. It's usually yeah. much, much better than this. Comcast. I'm blaming Comcast. And uh, the people listening to the show, they're hearing me coming through the mic, through my microphone into the through the mixer. So it sounds terrific for everybody except for the people that I'm on this call with. So. Right. All right. So are those your only picks, Dave? Yes. And I just want to say once more, ankle spanking. <laughs> All right. Uh, AJ, what are your picks? All right. So to start us off. Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. What? <laughs> Could you repeat that, please? Captain I think said Toad Ankle Spanking. Yeah. <laughs> Almost exactly the same, except for all of the syllables. There were <laughs> letters in there, so you got that right. Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. It is the cutest game 
that Nintendo has ever made. That's all I gotta say. And if you know that you're gonna like it, you're gonna like it. And if you don't know that you're gonna like it, and you don't like the other games I like, you won't like it. But if you, uh, my favorite part of Mario 3D World was the Treasure Tracker mini games. I didn't like the overworld game quite that much. And the full game is amazing. After that, Endless Fantasy by Ana Managuchi. Don't get distracted by the music video. Just listen to it. Then watch the music video afterwards. Vagrant. Turns out that if you have the problem I do, where every time you upgrade OS X and try to reinstall RVM or Ruby and Brew and everything that anything that used Ruby on your system is just completely broken because it always is, particularly static site blog generators. Ugh. You can use Vagrant and you can you can just keep it and you can upgrade OS X from 10.5 to 10.6, all the way to 10.10, and you could just keep that blessed 1.8.6. And so Vagrant's like a, a, it's a virtual box thingy-mabob. You, you specify a config file, it downloads a virtual box image, and it runs virtual box. And so that's why I'm talking about the Ruby thing is you, you could just have this virtual box that's like taking up not very much RAM on your system and it's just stable and you can, you can run your blog static site generator tool thing in that instead of on your OSX machine. So that's that. Um, <laughs> I love how you blamed Ruby because people don't have uh, problems with their versions of Node. No, they do not. They do not. When was the last time you heard somebody complain about their version of Node? Node hasn't even changed versions for two years. <laughs> they got to create a fork because point twelve is never happening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, biting my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a pick that I'm going to share. It's called Desk Time. And I've decided that I, I really need to do better at keeping track of what I'm spending my time on. And uh, so what it does is it keeps track of what app you're in. It also has a Chrome plugin and a Safari plugin. So uh, if you're on the Mac anyway, you can uh, hook that into your browser. And then it'll also tell you which websites you were on. And then you can, you know, you can say this website's productive, this website's not productive. You know, so if, if, if it's YouTube or something and you're not watching a talk, then you can say, oh, okay, you know, site's not productive. Or you can just say, well, I spent an hour watching a talk on YouTube, so that hour is productive. But the idea is, is then I can start saying, okay, I need to spend less time doing this or that or whatever. And, uh, this is especially relevant to me since I don't have a boss that checks in on how I spend my time. And I track my time for my clients separately, but this is just for me for my own productivity. So that's that's my pick. Joseph, what are your picks? So my picks, uh, first of all, given that it's the start of 2015, there's a blog post by someone from the Less Wrong community who's now, who is one of the directors of CIFAR, which is the Center for Polydirectionality. I don't know what anyone knows about Less Wrong, but it's a really great blog post talking about how humans are not automatically strategic, with the idea being that you will basically not accomplish your goals. Like if you ask someone what they actually want to accomplish in their life, and then ask them what they're actually doing with their life, you know, and you ask them, like, what specific actions will bring you close to that goal? And then ask them what actions they're actually doing. Then often those actions aren't actually the things that will get them close to their goal. I know this is, <laughs> this is true for me. Um, and this is something that I've been thinking about a bit. And it's this kind of like 
deep insight that like oh god we're like dumb monkeys we're like just the just just smart enough to be able to like make civilization but only just you know as soon as we got smart <laughs> enough we made civilization and that that's all the evolving that we've done you know so yeah it talks about this idea that we're not automatically strategic and we have to actually go out of our way to act strategically and be strategic in our lives and like speaking of 20 like it's the start of 2015 this is something that like this is my new year's resolution to try and be better at this kind of stuff my second pick is another blog post called uh, Al Weiwei is Living in Our Future. I bring it up because we were talking about some of the, like, you know, re-decentralized stuff and government surveillance. There's this amazing artist called Al Weiwei, who's Chinese. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. He does this amazing art, but he's been living under, like, 24-7 government surveillance with, like, people standing outside his house and all sorts of crazy things for the past little while. And the article is like, a little bit depressing, but really well-written and really interesting, talking about how the way that he's living today is the way that we are going to be living soon if we're not already with like a lot of different technologies and things like, you know, governments reading all of our emails and SMSs and stuff. It's an interesting thought. I always bounce back and forth between being like, you know, dystopian and pessimistic about the future and being really optimistic about all the stuff we're building. Uh, and my last pick is the response that I use. It's a little tool called Top. Top is a build system that is my response every time someone tells me to use Grunt or Gulp or whatever the the, the new fad build system in the Node.js world is. Top uh, is amazing. It is an incredible build system. What it actually does is it fires up a... It's, it's written in C. It's quite old. It fires up a Fuse file system, which it mounts over the top of your actual real file system in your build directory. And then when you run your build program, it actually just watches your compiler and checks every single file that the compiler looks at and remembers that. So next time you make any modifications to any of those files, you just rerun top, and top knows exactly what files are dependents of any other building step that it runs, because it watched the compiler do it, which is really amazing. It's like the ultimate build system thing, where you don't have to do any of the work. Top does all the work in figuring out, or you know, well, almost all of the work in figuring out which files need to be read and updated and recompiled. So how do you build when, if the you first make any changes? Build the first time, you just say, hey, I'm going to build this thing. Okay, I'm running it now. I'm doing it. And then it watches, and it records it in its own little internal database file of all the files that got modified. So that's it, which is kind of amazing. Like, so really presumably cool. the first time, yeah, you're building the whole thing anyway, so you can just watch that version, or watch that run. So yeah, it's kind of like the ultimate in build systems. And it's based on a whole bunch of like build system theory and build system papers, which they link on their website, which I, I find really satisfying in some like deep technical way. So yeah, yeah. If so, that's I like why, how it why, compares itself to something called Mordor. That's cool. <laughs> so the grunt gulp is, war, but... yeah, you're you're walking into the middle of the battlefield with a target painted on your back. Oh yeah, but I'm telling you exactly what that I'll do. Sounds cool. Complains. There was this big pull request someone made to like convert ShareJS to, to Grunt. Yeah, while well, that was still the, the build system du jour. And I've had for a long time a default accept policy on pull requests. So if I can't think of a good reason why not, then I'd like the project to move in the direction and encourage maintainers and so on. But oh my god, that was such a mess. And it took me a long time to rip all that gross Grunt crap out, like double the number of dependencies I had and everything else. Um, I think that Gulp is a lot better, but Top is better still. So there you go. That's my opinion on the whole build system war. All right. Well, thanks for coming Joseph, it was a lot of fun, and I think this is a really interesting system with really interesting ways of moving the web forward. So hopefully we'll see Thank some you. things come out of it that pay off for the world. Yeah, I'm really excited to be working on it. And as I said, if anyone else is really excited to work on this stuff, then we're hiring. So we would love to get some more like impassioned, smart 
you know, engineers to come and work, work with us um, to build some really cool stuff. Um, there's still some things that I don't want to talk about yet. We're still like in stealth mode in some ways for some stuff, but um, the platform is all going to be open sourced as we build it, uh, or it's going to be open sourced at some point. Um, and I'm really excited to, you know, I'm looking really looking forward to reaching that point where we can start putting it out in the world and getting people building cool technology on top of the systems that we're working on. So yeah, so thanks for having me on. It's been been a blast. All right, well, we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week. Have you noticed that a lot of developers always land the job they interview for? Are you worried that someone else just landed your dream job? John Sonmez can show you how to do this with the course, How to Market Yourself as a Software Developer. Go to devcareerboost.com and sign up using the code JJABBER to get $100 off. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit cachefly.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.